This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. I grew up at around 8,000 feet in the foothills of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. I feel at home with dry heat, alpine meadows, high desert plateaus, the vast arc of the Great Basin, and the quiet, fresh sweetness of ponderosa pine forests. When I heard the name of the website home of today's guest, Gardens of the Wild Wild West, I knew I wanted to speak with this woman about all this title can and might bring to mind. Mary Ann Newcomer lives and gardens in the great state of Idaho, where she celebrates the long history of gardeners who came before her. She's the author of several books, including The Timber Press Guide to Vegetable Gardening in the Mountain States and co-author with John Creddy of the Rocky Mountain Gardener's Handbook, All You Need to Know to Plan, Plant, and Maintain a Rocky Mountain Garden. Also affectionately known over the Boise, Idaho radio waves as the Dirt Diva, Mary Ann is a knowledgeable adventurer and historian of the native and introduced plants that thrive in the Intermountain West. She joins us today from the studios of Boise State Public Radio to share more. Welcome, Mary Ann. Thank you so much, Jennifer. So tell us about how you got started in in the world of not only loving plants, Marianne, and being a passionate gardener, but being really interested in and compelled by the pioneer gardens and the history of Western gardening. Well, my personal history, uh, I grew up, I, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents in um, Leita, Washington, and as my grandmother used to say, population 121, including the chickens. <laughs> yeah, very small town outside of Spokane, uh, about 10 miles inside the Washington border. My home was in Orfino, Idaho, in the Clearwater Canyon, along the trail of Lewis and Clark. Mm-hmm. But my grandparents were uh, almost self-sufficient as gardeners. My grandmother's family had homesteaded in Genesee, Idaho, on the famous Palouse Prairie. Mm. And they'd grown up being able to, you know, milk cows, grow sheep, a hog or two for bacon, um, and growing wheat, lentils, peas, that kind of thing. And so they were very, very self-sufficient. And my granddad had a huge huge, about a quarter of a city block garden in corn and potatoes, uh, tomatoes and everything. And my grandmother was always diligent and out there tending to her German bearded iris and dahlias. <laughs> and as kids, we were just there side by side. And they gave us, gave me my very own vegetable patch. And I, I, I just didn't ever think any other way. That's, that's what I did. And, um, so that's probably how I got started. I, I remember, too, I, I've never not had a plant, um, like some people would have a pet rock or something. I've always had plants. Moving from my hometown to my college town of Boise, had a car full of macrame hangings, you know, with coleus and creeping charlies, and, and they just traveled with me no matter where I was. Uh, my first real home away from home in southern Maryland I planted a huge garden, um, and that, that's just 
that's just kind of what I did. So your home away from home in Maryland, um, t- tell us about that transplant that you, you clearly went on and then came back from. But first you did your, your undergraduate work at Boise State? Correct. I have a degree in economics. Therefore, I'm a garden writer. (laughs) It follows, right? It so does. The economics are just so good. Um, Okay, but so what what took you to Maryland and out of the heart of your home country? Well, I was thinking about that on the way over here to the radio station. My husband's in the Navy, and he Mm -hmm. was was in the Navy. He and he's actually an Idaho native, as I am. And um, we were stationed in Patuxent River, and we lived in a little tiny kind of a neighborhood. It wasn't even a suburb. And the weather was so much different than I am used to here. While mm-hmm. we have all four seasons back there, they, you could plant your tomatoes in March or April, and I was astonished by that. And we had a great neighbor named Shorty, and he showed me how to do all of that. And I just – I had a heyday because – it was all new to me. It was. It, I found it, um, other than the humidity, which was stifling, it was a much more forgiving kind of place to garden. Longer season, uh, less dramatic swings in the temperatures. And I did big blocks of nothing but annual flowers. And then my tomatoes were eight feet tall. Hmm. And I, I just found that. I just, I had a great time with that. Although I became very claustrophobic in the environment. Driving down the road, you can't see anything but a canopy of trees. And I had been born and raised out here where I'm used to being able to see for 30 miles at a pop. Mm. And it, it kind of caught up with me. I, one day I think I actually hallucinated thinking I could see mountains. And I knew better. Um, but I, I and I always miss this place terribly. And so, when did you get back home? Um, we got back in 1985, and we were very lucky. I thought when my husband went to work for the uh, airlines, that we would end up doing a stint in New York or Atlanta or Los Angeles, and or Seattle or Houston, or Dallas, and that didn't happen. He was hired right away by. Uh, Horizon Airlines, and after a year was picked up by Western, and six weeks later, Western was bought by Delta. So he was with the airline of his dreams, Mm -hmm. and by then they had a hub in Salt Lake. And so we've been able to stay here all along, and that was really nice because our families are here. And so, you know, we just didn't miss a beat. Yeah, yeah. And there is something about going away that makes you realize how much you love home, don't you? Don't you find? I I do, and as much as I love to travel, and I enjoy that, I enjoy it immensely, and I love understanding other cultures and other places, and I mm-hmm. sure do like to see them. I am an Idaho girl through and through, and I always want to be able to say that that mm-hmm. Idaho is is where I live. <laughs> so. You get back to Idaho in 1985. Mm-hmm. You have a really pretty pretty long list of, you know, um, garden authority kind of credentials after your name at this point. What describe your journey into being an advocate for Western gardens and Western gardening? 
always having loved gardens and people knew that about me someone kind of tapped me on the shoulder one day and said there's going to be a party there they're opening up the Idaho Botanical Garden and you would probably like to go and be a part of that it's like ten dollars to join and I thought oh my and I went right out there and I knew a lot of other people who were going and I knew a lot of the people who were organizing it but I still was kind of a I don't know I was I was new and I was still young and it seemed like such a big deal to be a part of a botanical garden and but I just signed up to volunteer to do all kinds of things take tickets help weed whatever and by 1990 I was asked to be on the board of directors I think because I have pretty good fundraising skills and those are always needed when you're running a nonprofit and so I segued from the actual horticulture part of it into the fundraising and the board of director type of stuff and helping push forward uh, the garden as it expanded. And in 1996, I was asked to chair uh, the committee that was going to put in a contemporary English garden in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. And uh, a woman had left us uh, an endowment to do that. She had traveled all over the world and was actually from, uh, Muriel Kirk was her name. She was originally from Oklahoma, but had settled in Idaho. And I was tapped to be in charge of that project. And I have to say, the while I had a whole committee, there were four or five of us, including our master planner, a landscape architect on belts, my friend John Dodson, who's a horticulturist, a retired professor, and then Rod Burke, who at the time was head of horticulture for the garden. So at least the four of us, we were like the four musketeers and would work 24-7 at adapting this plan to the high desert. We had no shade. We had to redo. Uh, we'd had a list of plant material and a sketch from John Brooks from England, and none of the plants would work here. So we redid them, and John Dodson, literally, we went plant by plant by plant, and he would say, look at this cultivar, look at this, and I don't, I'm not sure I even knew what a cultivar was in 1996, and here we are 20 years later, that garden is overgrown, mm -hmm. it has a lot of shade, um, and we're completely redoing it, thank heavens all my buddies are still alive, and I'm going after it with a great big paintbrush, and mm. we're going to make it just pop. Yeah. So talk about that experience of the the adaptation, because in fact, this is in many ways so um, a perfect example of what any you know settler gardener was trying to do, was trying to make what they knew and what they understood work in an entirely new environment. So to set the stage for listeners who might not be familiar with exactly what we're talking about when we talk about this West, this very specific Western climate, because it's the inner mountain West. It's not the, it's not the West Coast. It's not the Pacific Northwest. It's not Southern California. It is a very specific climate. So describe for people what like what kind of elevation and what kind of, um, you know, what USDA zone and, and some more Gosh. specifics for us. 
Um, that's really funny because I had to really work this piece over when I did the uh, Rocky Mountain vegetable guide because mm-hmm. I think they thought I was in Seattle <laughs> or Portland or right. the Willamette Valley when that is just not the case at all. Mm-mm. We are part of the Great Basin and Range geological formation. We encompass about five different gardening zones, depending on if you break them up into A and B, but I have almost tundra-like conditions, uh, for instance, Beartooth Path in Montana, and um, so that would be a zone two or three, mm-hmm. and it goes to, this region actually goes to northern um, or middle of Utah, northern Nevada, Colorado. So we are an Orfino, Idaho, Lewiston, Idaho is at just a couple hundred feet elevation. And of course, then we have in there Pikes Peak, we have Mount Bora, we have all of these mountain ranges, the Sawtooth. I think Idaho has a hundred listed mountain ranges. Not Mm -hmm. all of them are as long or impressive as the Rocky Mountains, but uh, they cut right through the border of north central Idaho. So we have swings in temperature. Uh, Our mutual friend Deborah Prinzing had a kind of a shock last week when she was here because we had a 50 degree drop in temperature in one day. (laughs) Um, But that's the thing that I don't think people sometimes realize. And the other thing is today I believe our humidity is probably about 15 to 17 percent, which really throws people for a loop. In the very northern part of Idaho, which um, Sandpoint, Bonners Ferry, and over even to Spokane, they get considerably more rain, but it's still very dry. Mm-hmm. And Southern Idaho, we have very mineral soils, uh, high alkaline content, and it's really tough. Without the entire irrigation system that was created 100 years ago, you couldn't be farming here in the desert. And that's, we're, we're sagebrush step essentially. Yeah. And it's pretty darn tough. And it's tough to keep water on anything. You have, I think, about a 70% evaporation rate during the day if you were just to water with a sprinkler. Mm-hmm. So you have to really be adaptive and um, I'd say knowledgeable. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, gardening takes a little bit of work, but you can feed yourself. So how magical is that? And um, people, when they came here to make their homes, they brought, and this leads right into my pioneer plants, they brought plants with them and tried all kinds of things. But the ones that worked and the ones that are still in existence are the ones that were extremely tough, well-adapted, and drought-tolerant. And I think that goes almost as a good saying for the people who have ended up populating this area. You need to be tough and adaptive. Mm-hmm. This is this is not a place for sissies. <laughs> and when you have 50-degree temperature swings in a day, that's a very good example of, of what you could face. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. When you hear the phrase, gardens of the wild, wild west, 
What comes to mind? For gardener, author, historian, and radio host Mary Ann Newcomer of Boise, Idaho, there's a long history of intrepid plants, gardens, and gardeners that came before her. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about them. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from Mary Ann Newcomer, author of Vegetable Gardening in the Mountain States, to hear more about the plants that have stood the test of time in gardens of the Intermountain West and what lessons they may have to teach us as gardeners no matter where we live. Welcome back. When did you first develop your appreciation for these pioneer plants and that they were an entire kind of grouping to themselves. My mother-in-law had given me a copy of My Antonia, Mm -hmm. and I did not read it at first. I was just reading it, I don't know, six or seven years ago. I mean, really reading it. And I am to the point where I was reading about Annie or, or Antonia and her garden, and I'm at the end of the book, which we'll get to later, but she was talking about how they had to carry water and everything was done by hand. And I knew that that had been the case with my great-grandparents on the homestead in northern Idaho. And all of a sudden, just like bingo, the light went off, and I went, oh my God, that is, that's the original sustainable gardening. And they were feeding themselves, yet they brought in some of the beauty that they needed, like the German bearded iris and rose and that kind of thing. But they were actually providing all the food that they were going to have for the winter, and they had to make that work. Mm -hmm. And the two, all of it came together. They didn't have uh, pressurized irrigation. It was before the canal systems here. They did not have... Um, the combustion engine. My great-grandfather farmed with a team of horses. They did not have synthetic fertilizers. Uh, They had to save seeds and plants from one year to the next, and all of a sudden, I mean, just the whole thing. I I mean, I got up in the middle of the night, and I started writing, and I don't think I've stopped. (laughs) Uh, I sleep better now, though, once I figured it out. And of course, My Antonia is one of the books in the trilogy called, I think it's the final book in the trilogy called The Prairie Trilogy by Willa Cather. Correct. And it talks about the the history of pioneer settlement. I think the, the trilogy was published, or at least one of them was 1918, 19, uh, a little bit earlier as well. And Certainly, Willa Cather wasn't the only one who wrote in this genre of books, but is one of the really remarkable ones. And um, and it does document this time and place in our country and for gardeners. So, so one of the things I want to ask you, Marianne, is this idea of you know how we know about them besides works like Willa Cather, and what are the ones that have survived that we have access to now. Well, I have been creating a list, and I just—I I was lucky to attend a Willa Cather conference, a, a scholars conference, and then also last night I heard from Dr. Edelaine, who 
interviewed Wallace Stegner and has been a professor of Western literature history. Um, and he said the first book he ever recommends and has his students read is My Antonia because it does talk about how the women and men tended these gardens. But for instance, there would have been potatoes, corn seeds, uh, any of the other kind of root vegetables, the turnips and the carrots. And, and especially because a lot of these people were um, German and Slovakian pioneers and immigrants, they brought a lot of that stuff, seeds for that, like cabbage. There were uh, German bearded iris, morning glory, the good kind, not, not the bindweed. <laughs> there would be sweet peas, uh, the original marigolds seeds, original petunias, which have a real sprawling habit and a very, very pronounced fragrance, hops for making beer. Oh, boy. And the list just goes on and on. I have mm -hmm. a, a big, long list of, of plant material. And it, the thing that's so interesting about this, I'd also read a book, but I didn't make the connection at the time, uh, a book by Timber Press called American Household Botany. And they talk about the fact that it, we're only 200 years removed from everybody having a working knowledge of plants. Right. Well, so that I, I finally... When I got to this point about the heirloom plants, I realized, wow, these they were only 100 years removed. Plants have always been used for dyeing, for medicine, of course, trees for lumber, edible, fragrance, any, any number of things. Only after the Industrial Revolution did we become detached from the great gardens of the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're recorded as far back in, in Persian time when there were the original walled gardens where people could enclose, for instance, a source of water and could keep their their small food and herb gardens in there and enclosed and safe from predators. So it's odd now to me that so many people don't have any knowledge of gardening. Mm -hmm. And then I, of course, then, of course, get immediately wrapped up in the whole romance of it with the Antonia and having been a child watching my grandmother with the German bearded iris and, and knowing that some of them had been passed down from her mother and those were passed down from neighbors and watching her trade stuff with plant cuttings with other people in mm -hmm. the neighborhood, the lilacs, the yellow rose, things like that, and not, not really having a good grasp on the fact that that's how gardens were made. There wasn't a lot of mail order, and you sure as heck couldn't walk into Lowe's or Home Depot. No, you didn't even have a nursery. Like You it, didn't it was have a, a nursery. Right. There were, you know, 1850s, 1890s, even though there is some historical plant exchanges with Thomas Jefferson, John Bartram, and all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The average gardener did not have access to a lot mm -hmm. of exotic stuff. And that that's another thing I, I, I'll interject here about, like, annuals. We think of annuals very often as bedding plants. We think of petunias and impatiens and things that look snazzy, and we put them in the ground and for color in the summer. Annuals were a very important part of gardens in terms of being able to save the seed from one year to the mm -hmm. next, that was so critical. Um, you look at the Native Americans with the squash, the corn, 
and the beans. Those were all, you could save those from one year to the next. Then it, uh, the flowers, Coreopsis, Cosmos, sweet peas, all of those had to be carried from one year to the next. Yeah. Herbs, same thing. And it's the annuals are so uniquely perfect for our climate because we do have, in general, a lot of very short growing season time. And so the annuals are built to put on growth and put on flower and produce seed or fruit or fruit and then seed, um, as the case may be, uh, in a relatively short amount of time and do it all in one season. And so they, they are very effective for our climates, whether it's, you know, edible or ornamental. And so there's a couple of things I want to follow up on mm-hmm. from what you were just talking about. And that first is this idea of these pass along legacy plants and people's ability to figure out how to take a cutting when to take a cutting, how to hold on to it so that they could pass it to their neighbor or store it for a long ride and then have it still be viable once they got to where they were going. I mean, these are lessons that we aren't taught anymore and almost every single pioneer person had to figure out how to do it. And of course, the 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 first sustainable gardening would have been that gardening of our first peoples and then having the settlers come and kind of interface with them bringing their plant knowledge and techniques into these native environments and that sort of the way they interfaced I find fascinating. Correct and a lot of what I think the early settlers brought did not do nearly as well as they had anticipated And the Native Americans had a huge grasp of what worked and what didn't. And so they ended up showing a lot of the European people how to make the gardens thrive. But that was a big deal. And when the early pioneers came west, they had developed some techniques. They borrowed things, Johnny Appleseed, you know, um, cuttings from apples that were preferred varieties because apple does not come true from seed so they take scions or cuttings and can keep those alive by putting them in a little bit of dirt but a lot of times like a rose cutting would be transported by putting it into the sharp point of a rose cutting into a piece of potato because that potato as it became as it deteriorated provided moisture as well as carbohydrates to those cuttings. Um, You could move bulbs or rhizomes like iris. I keep coming back to iris. And, of course, the seeds were totally transferable. When we talk about a slip, taking a slip of something, what are we talking about? We're talking about taking a small cutting with generally sometimes a piece of the root or a piece of the stem that has the ability to root on its own later. And when I get one from someone, very often because I'm not going very far, I can wrap that in a piece of paper towel, which no one had back then, and put it in a baggie and get it to my house and then gently plant it up and watch it. Or I could put it, like for instance, coleus is one of the first plants my grandmother gave me and shared with me. You can just pop off a piece of that and put it in a glass of water and it will get it develop its own root system in no time. Or like I said, the scions of the apple trees. 
So is a scion the same as a hardwood cutting? Yes. Yes, and it is. And a slip is sort of akin to a softwood cutting yes, or a root, yeah, as, a root division. Uh, okay. Right. A slip I consider being something really from a, a, an herbaceous perennial. Yep. And I would think of the a, a cutting to be rooted as more of something from a woody perennial or a mm-hmm. woody plant. Right. So the other thing I want to pick up on from what you had started before was these different ways that we know something about what they brought with them um, based on what what did survive. And clearly there was a lot that didn't survive, but there are a whole host of plants that you can sort of follow in a trail, literally across the United States and say, oh, that came east, that came from the east, you know. And some of those are the like fantastic roses that people planted at their homesteads and they planted at their, um, at sort of historic cemetery, you know, they weren't historic right. at the time, right. but planted at cemetery sites. And you can, you can hike in areas throughout the West where there may have been homesteads and see these residual iris, lilacs, apple trees. And, and sometimes they're, they're in the middle of what is now forest again. And But that is what tells you that someone did try and homestead there. Yes. There are a couple of really, really great projects that I'm, I'm aware of just because they're close to me. And one of them, um, you know, we had the gold mines here too, the gold and uh, silver mines. And we had Shep Ranch uh, back on the Salmon River, the River of No Return. And Charlie Shep was a fabulous gardener. And across the river was the fabulous Polly Bemis, who was famous for her gardens as well. And they provided food and stuff for the miners that were going back into the really hard country. Nowadays, they are actually sending university students into the Salmon River area where the rafting is a big deal and and there are still some homesteads in there but they are taking cuttings scion cuttings of the existing apple trees that are over uh, in some cases 120 years old to grow them out and identify them there is a sim a similar project on Steptoe Butte which is up by up near Spokane Washington where a gentleman has identified at least a half a dozen different heirloom apple trees. And one of the things that just blows me away about the history is, you know, at one time there were something like 10,000 varieties of apples in the United States. And we dumbed it down to Mm -hmm. about six for market purposes. Mm -hmm. And thank heavens there's a resurgence or a renaissance in bringing back these really, really, really tough as nails, heirloom apples and cherries and pears and peaches, uh, berries and things like that, because there were so they have all those great attributes. They're they're really tough. They can get by with much less water. Right. So yeah, I, and I'm I have been known for um, actually I'll, I'll make a big admission here for breaking and entering. Um, I do old homesteads. kind of like the Rose Rustlers did in Texas and Mm -hmm. created, you know, a collection of those heirloom roses that were found around the old homesteads and the uh, cemeteries. I have been seen prowling around on my hands and knees around old farmhouses because 
I have found things like Fritillaria imperialis, beautiful pheasant's eye narcissus, yeah, um, lilacs, chestnut trees, double white daffodils, and and some of these I found at a place in North Idaho near my hometown. Well, I mentioned this to someone, and he happened to know the family that had owned that, and I was able to get a hold of their family history. And in the telling of that family history, they mentioned what plants they brought and where they came. They came across from Scotland into Canada and Saskatchewan and then dropped down into northern Idaho. And I have two pear trees that we're trying to identify through the University of Idaho now. But I have been able to find a lot of those bulbs and things that were mentioned. And that's a so hundred years, at least a hundred and some years, with no interference from us. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. An intrepid gardener and gardening advocate herself, Marianne Newcomer has a long-standing fascination with the plants that were carried by the early European settlers to the American Intermountain West, by the gardens they grew for food and for beauty, and the lessons we might learn from the stories held in these histories. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place. Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back after a break to chat more with Mary Ann Newcomer, author of Vegetable Gardening in the Mountain States, to hear more about the plants, potatoes, sweet peas, roses, irises, peonies, lilacs, and narcissus, and more, that have stood the test of time in gardens of the Inner Mountain West, and what lessons they may have to teach us as gardeners no matter where we live. Marianne helps to adapt some traditional concepts of garden design, like the iconic English garden, to the rugged climate of her region by using beautiful and colorful native plants as well as adapted and storied heirloom plants. Welcome back. They didn't need extra water. They didn't need extra food. They didn't, right. you know, they didn't succumb to disease or decay. And they have a ton of lessons to teach us, which is what I love about what, what, you're, what you're working on. Now, of course, there's some portion of tragedy in there as well. There are those plants that were introduced and are now noxious weeds across the West. There is a legacy of overwhelming Native American peoples and the way they handled the land, which is no good end. Still, the positive aspects of these histories are important, I think, to us. And clearly, this is what your work is all about. Let me bring this full circle back to you working with the, you know, newly born uh, botanical garden there in Boise and trying to develop, you know, this is a modern day version of what was happening all over the place. Women, I'm I'm assuming they were mostly women who were carrying the roses and the peonies and the irises and coming in and trying to eke out this beauty in this new and very harsh climate. So fast forward to you there in Boise working on trying to create an English garden in Boise, which is just it does, as a gardener, kind of make you want to chuckle. Mm-hmm. But you then have this ability to take these lessons from these plants you know and do just that. So describe describe that process. Well, I, ju- I want to say something. I want to give uh, credit here to Scott Kuntz from Old House Gardens because yes. I had sent Scott some pictures of some of these um, iris and 
the bulbs that I had had found, the daffodils and the fritillarias. And in talking to him, he was he could ID them in just like one picture in a second kind of thing. But you know, he talked about how we our whole need to garden besides sustenance. There's also sustenance of the soul, and that is the beautiful roses and the iris and the sweet peas. And he said, Marianne, that's what makes us human. Mm-hmm. And I have never let go of that thought because that, that's what we do. We tend to try to make things even, we try to make them beautiful mm-hmm. beyond the natural beauty that is around us. And yes, there were some things like Dame's Rocket and Saponaria that got away from people in certain areas. But I feel like I also have a really good opportunity at the Idaho Botanical Garden to show people what thrives here and how great of a garden you can make without a lot of, I'm going to use tender as opposed to a tender perennial, without these very tender mollycoddled plants because quite frankly, I'm done with them. Mm -hmm. So I don't want anything that's going to be fussy or needs to be doted over or protected anymore other than maybe the occasional tomato plant. Um, So I'm looking at these natives and these heirloom plants as a way to bolster this English garden because that's how a lot of the English gardens were actually, aside from the the grand estates and manor houses, uh, the small cottage gardens were a lot of pass-along plants and annuals and that kind of thing. And they were very well suited to a much more gentle climate than what we have here. And at the risk of offending people, I'm seeing global warming or global weirding, as I like to call it. It's just going berserk around here. We have hotter, longer summers than we've ever had before. We're having very odd winters. And I don't think we have time to mess with a lot of fussy plant material, whether we're eating them or whether or not we're growing them for beauty. And so it brings me back. I'm always going back around and looking for plants like before 1890 to see what could get by without a lot of additional pressurized irrigation, without hoses, without this, without that. And I think we would do really well to study that and pay attention to that. Um, Besides, it's kind of fun, and it's a history lesson in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And it is really fun. And and to look at what we consider a traditional English garden and then look at this palette of resourceful, resilient plants that we know came with the pioneers, and then match that with the unbelievable, beautiful prairie plants there where you live and the the Palouse Mm -hmm. Prairie, and to then combine them um, for food or for beauty, like what could be better than that? That, That's it, exactly. I I think too, like for instance, the penstemons, and and I don't mean to discourage anyone from using hybrid penstemons, but Idaho alone is home to a couple dozen native penstemons that are on the market and that are easy to come by. And I would like people to look at those that um, are native to the 
to our regions first before they branch out maybe and try the other ones. I just saw some really fine examples of this up by Ketchum, Idaho this last weekend on a garden tour where an entire two-acre property had been done in a native meadow grassland area. And while they had introduced a couple of things like the yellow yarrow, our native one is white, and they had introduced a cat mint, a nepeta, but there were colonies of blue Rocky Mountain penstemon, colonies mm. of native asters. And I just don't think sometimes we, we remember how beautiful those can be, not to mention how easy they are to live with and to they, they require so little maintenance. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's my thing, too. I see I want things that are a little less troublesome, I, I, and that's just me. I'm, I'm getting older, and I'm also getting really picky. I don't want to waste my water on things that uh, I, I understand fully that I live in the desert, and so mm-hmm. I don't want to be blowing our drinking water on my plants. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that more and more um, of us who are avid gardeners and we love the look of, of many different kinds of gardens, we not only don't want to blow our um, our drinking water or someone else's drinking water on our plants, but we also don't want to find that anything that we are doing is in any way harming something as beautiful as the Palouse Prairie or you know, where I am, the California grasslands. Right. And, and that more and more we are widening our own awareness and appreciation of what these places mean. And, and while you and I are talking very specifically about the American Inner Mountain West and its history and its climate, the fact is that the story is the same on any, uh, on any continent. There are different climates and there are different cultures, but they are the same idea of what we can learn from what came before us and what we can learn from what's right here in front of us. And I, I think that's the, the big, big story. And, and like I said, when the light bulb went off, I was just, I was astonished at, at how this was a very old story. Yeah. And how had I missed it? <laughs> I couldn't believe that I had missed it. And as much as I loved my grandparents and I never met my great grandparents, I thought, my goodness, Marianne, you, you came from this. What, why, mm-hmm. you know, you, and you're just now seeing it. Right. But I think we kind of need to embrace that. And boy, howdy, the thing about regionalism and gardening, uh, there are so many books out there, as I know you are aware, and I review a lot of books. There aren't enough books about regional gardening. Let me just mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. We need more help in dealing with, and, and this is a really rough place to garden. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if Once you get it down, you're, you're probably going to be okay once you, you figure out how to adapt. But big swings in temperature like we have here are not the same as they have on the East Coast. Evenings in the East do not drop. The temperatures do not drop uh, 20, 30 40 degrees. Right. Um, the, the higher humidity keeps the stomatas of the plants open. Our plants close up to protect themselves. Plants in the east don't. So the plants they can grow back there are completely different and, and should well be mm-hmm. from a lot of the ones that thrive here. They are very well adapted. And my personal goal is to create 
a knockdown, drag out, beautiful garden of things from, like for instance, plant select. These heirlooms that I now know can survive without me, mm-hmm. and to incorporate those into what I consider the teachable moment at the botanical garden, and that's that's my work now is to show folks that we shouldn't we shouldn't stick our nose up at these very old plants. the The other thing is, so many of them had powerful, powerful fragrance. And so yeah. look at the look at the resurgence in heirloom tomatoes and heirloom vegetables. Right. It's all the rage. Well, they didn't have anything but those when in 1815. Right. So I think we take a look at, at what the things that worked and be very mindful of those and incorporate that into our own garden. I do too. I do too. And I think that it's when leading gardeners and public figures show these pictures and tell these stories that it will be, I don't know of an, a mature gardener who doesn't also sort of slap themselves on the head and be like, wait a minute, why wasn't I doing this 25 years ago? And it takes us all the time that it takes us. But I'm, I'm hoping that that progression for the next sets of generations of gardeners is a little, a little quicker, Marianne, because there are that many people out there showing, not just telling, but showing how effective and beautiful it is. That's certainly my hope, too. Yeah. Um, and uh, not only beautiful, but fragrant and very useful. And like my grandmother used to say to me, make yourself useful as well as ornamental, dear. And <laughs> I kind of feel like that's how my garden should be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree. Today, was there anything else you wanted to share? Like, I want to make sure that you share what what you would like. I want people to be very much aware of the tactile, fragrant, all the senses involved in these, I call them pioneer plants. Pioneer botanically is not accurate. Pioneer would, re- would actually mean a plant that would go in like after a forest fire, the things that come back first. But right. pioneer meaning attached to the people that populated spaces, like traveled across the United States, that kind of thing. I, I just, I would like to reawaken um, people's interest in those. And I will do my very best to show folks how, how to make that work. And storytelling is a great way to do that. So I hope to continue to do that and to be able to hand out beautiful bouquets of those purple iris that smell like grape bubble gum yeah. and sweet peas and all of that and just encourage people to keep doing this because it's really, it's a lot of fun. And I think one of the things I mentioned before was most people come to gardening because they remember someone who gardened and it was a beloved family member. And almost to a person, if I, I ask in a room, how many of you gardened with someone or are, are a gardener because of someone in your family? And I would bet I get nine out of 10 hands pop up. So I, I think there's a, a memory involved in this, a sentimental mm-hmm. memory, as well as the fact that we can um, feed our souls and our bodies at the same time. Thank you very much for being a guest today. It's been a treat. Thank you so much. I, I just love being able to share my passion and, and get other people excited about it. 
Mary Ann Newcomer lives and gardens in the great state of Idaho, where she celebrates the long history of gardeners who came before her. She's an active member of the administration and the gardening staff at the Idaho Botanical Gardens in Boise, located on the site of the old Idaho Penitentiary. Mary Ann is the author of several books, including The Timber Press Guide to Vegetable Gardening in the Mountain States and co-author with John Creddy of the Rocky Mountain Gardener's Handbook. She is in the dreaming and scheming phases of a book on the plants of the American pioneers. She joined us today from the studios of Boise State Public Radio. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivating Place and value these conversations, please subscribe to Cultivating Place on iTunes or Stitcher, and give it a rating and review at wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, and most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversations about these things we love and which connect us. Together, we make a difference. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.